Do you know what it's like to be desperate for guidance? Desperate for guidance. What have been those moments in your life where you didn't know which way to turn? And you're crying out for guidance. College decision, career decision, relationship decision, move, geography, where you'll live decision, ministry decision. And what role did your faith in God play in the midst of those decisions? Situations where we're desperate for direction are always opportunities to trust God. Situations where we're desperate for direction are invitations to trust in God. I remember early on in my college time when I was sorting through my own faith in Christ. God was working very specifically, very powerfully, drawing me to himself, teaching me faith and repentance. And I just remember seeking his, his direction for what my life was going to look like. I felt like everything was in upheaval. And I committed this psalm to memory on the encouragement of my dad. Psalm 24, verses 4 and 5. Show me your ways, O God. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Situations where we're desperate for direction are always opportunities to trust God. Now this morning, I want to explore a passage from the Bible where we see both the wisdom and the goodness of God displayed in his guidance of his people. We see the wisdom and the goodness of God displayed in his guidance of his people. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. In the Bibles we've provided on your seats, you can find that on page 924. So we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, a sermon series we've entitled Church on Mission. We're just over the halfway point in this series. We'll finish it the end of August. And so here we are, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. We'll have these words projected as well. Luke, the author, writes, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into 
Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the central message of this sermon is that God displays his wisdom and his goodness through his guidance. God displays his wisdom and his goodness through his guidance. What we see here is Paul and his ministry team maneuvering, navigating through different decisions, ministry decisions and geographic decisions, and behind it all is the wise and the good hand of God guiding his people where they need to go. So God is demonstrating his faithfulness and guiding his people. So the structure here in this passage is twofold. God's guidance in ministry decisions. We see this in Acts 16, 1 through 5. And then we see God's guidance in geographic decisions. We see that in Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. So let's take a look at the first section here, God's guidance in ministry decisions. Luke, the writer, says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. Now, last week we discussed how Paul had a plan to basically retrace his steps in reverse order of his first missionary journey. So he's come back from his first journey, and he decides, Barnabas, let's go and retrace our steps and encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ that have come to faith through that first missionary journey. And so they have a dispute about who is to join them. In the end, Paul and Barnabas separate. Paul takes Silas. Barnabas goes to Cyprus with John Mark. But Paul ultimately goes to the last place that he was, to Derby and to Lystra. Now, this is significant because what happened to Paul in Lystra? The most recent place he was, he found himself nearly stoned to death. Initially welcomed, but then a group of hostile Jews stirred up the crowds, and they ultimately turned against him. They stoned him. He's at death's door, and it says the brothers prayed for him, and he rose up. Potentially was dead and was resurrected. We don't know. The, the text is ambiguous. But Paul goes back to the very place that he was stoned. What does that tell you about him? It, it tells you that part and parcel of his ministry was sacrifice. He was willing to lay down his life, his comforts, his conveniences, his health for the sake of the gospel going forward. It's what was written about him in the Jerusalem letter in Acts 15, 26. Paul was willing to risk his life for the sake of the Gentile mission. Paul was willing to lay it all down that Gentiles could come to know Jesus Christ. Friends, part and parcel of gospel ministry is sacrifice. Today, part and parcel of our following Jesus and serving him with the gifts that he gives us is sacrifice, giving, being inconvenienced, letting our comfort be chipped away at. That, that's, that's part of what it means to follow Christ. 
It's in fact a way that we embody his character because Christ's ministry was built upon sacrifice. It is a self-giving ministry. So as you consider engaging your gifts for the good of the gospel, how much does sacrifice play a part in that calculus? Sacrifice is part and parcel of gospel ministry. This is what we see in Paul and his ministry team. As they go back to Derby and Lystra, they meet a, a new disciple there, a young man named Timothy, who would go on to be one of Paul's closest pupils and his successor, a ministry partner that, that Paul just invests in, pours himself into, writes letters to, as we see in First and Second Timothy. But we meet Timothy here, and we see he's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, it's likely that during Paul's first ministry journey, he met Timothy's mother, who was of Jewish background, yet became a believer in Christ. So it's, it's, it's likely that Eunice, who is Timothy's mother, actually came to faith during Paul's first missionary journey. She was one of the pieces of fruit of their initial trip, their, their ministry. We see that she was of Jewish background, became a believer, and her husband was a Gentile. Now, this would make Timothy technically a Jew, because One's Jewish roots were inherited through the maternal line, not the paternal line. So Timothy's mother was Jewish, therefore her children, Timothy being one of them, would have been considered Jewish as well. Now this is important, we'll come back to it in a moment. Though his father's a Gentile, his mother is Jewish, and therefore, by the inheritance understanding of the, of the Jews, he too would be considered Jewish. We'll come back to that. He was spoken well of by the brothers and sisters, the Christians at Lystra and Iconium, which meant he had a good ministry reputation. He was well respected, spoken highly of, which meant he served Christ well in that place. He was faithful in the place that God had him, and as we'll see, he was faithful with people, and God goes on to entrust him with more. That's, that's ministry principle. That's gift principle 101 in Christianity. Be faithful with a little, and God will entrust you to be faithful with more. So Timothy is just serving God faithfully in Lystra, and Paul comes along and delights to use him more, to invite him along this ministry journey. Friends, serve God well in your present place. Be faithful with a little, and God in time will trust you with more. Serve God well in the place that he has you. Don't always be looking for bigger and better. Just be faithful with what he has in front of you. And in time, he entrusts us with, with more, more ministry, more opportunity. Serve God in the place that he has you. As we think about roles, leadership roles in the life of our church, elders and deacons, we view elders as those who are called to, to shepherd God's people. The rubric that we use to determine who God is raising up is just asking the question, who is already eldering before they're even given a, a name or a title? Who's already 
shepherding God's people, praying for them, coming alongside them, teaching them. And likewise, deacons at our church, which we view as kind of task-specific facilitators of ministry. So later on today, we'll gather for a members meeting, and we'll vote on, on three deacon roles. And so we, we see those as areas of oversight facilitators of ministry, whether it's the, the facility or women's ministry. How do we discern who are in those roles? We just ask, who's already dealing? Who's already using their gifts and serving without a, without a title? Serve God in the place that he has you. So verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, this is strange, quite strange, given the whole context of Acts chapter 15. We just finished a big brouhaha over circumcision. And the Jerusalem Council concludes that it's not necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be Christians. In other words, Gentiles don't have to become Jews first before they become Christians. They decide this by the Holy Spirit's guidance in Jerusalem. They craft a letter send it up to the church in Antioch, and they tell the, the good news, look, that you, we're not going to add this yoke on your shoulders. It's not necessary. So what is Paul doing here by having Timothy circumcised? This is where Timothy's religious background is key. Timothy is not viewed as a Gentile. So that whole conversation in Acts 15 doesn't necessarily apply to him Timothy is a Jew because his mom's a Jew, yet never was circumcised. We don't know why. And Paul's concerned about this. It could be a potential obstacle to ministry among Jews. Why is this Jew not circumcised? Did he reject the covenant of the Lord? So Paul is very concerned about the progress of the gospel and any impediment or obstacle that would, would, would arise. And so he has Timothy circumcised in keeping with the Jewish tradition, for Timothy was a Jew. Paul is sensitive to ministry obstacles. This is not a salvation in issue for Timothy. Paul's not saying you got to get circumcised so that you can be saved. No, no, no. He's saying you need to do this so we can minister effectively. He's bringing down barriers. He's removing obstacles. That's what we see him doing. Had Timothy had a Jewish father and a Gentile mother, he would have been a Gentile. And then Paul's insistence on his circumcision would have been a gospel plus theology. But that's, that's, not, that's not the case here. He's not a Gentile, he's a Jew. And Paul wants to make sure that he is keeping with the practices of the Jews as they go minister to them and preach the gospel. So Paul is exercising wisdom provided by the Lord and sensitivity so as to remove any obstacle. We see this in Paul's life and ministry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 and following. We see Paul entering this discussion that he is not going to take financial support from the church in Corinth because it would be a stumbling block to them. He didn't want to be viewed as a peddler of the gospel. So he withholds his right as an apostle to take money from the congregation for the sake of them hearing the gospel clearly and not having it clouded by them thinking he's some kind of charlatan or somebody who's coming just to get a, a paycheck. 
He says this, 1 Corinthians 9, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, that is the right to receive support from the church that he preaches to. I've set aside this right. We will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It's his heart. I don't want to erect an obstacle, anything that would impede it going forward. And so he has Timothy circumcised to remove an obstacle in somebody's mind, the Jewish mind, of why Timothy, a young Jew, has become a Christian, was never circumcised. That's, that's the background here. And it's important for us to think about what are the obstacles in the path of us ministering to people in our lives? What are the barriers that, frankly, we need to bring down, the obstacles that we need to clear in order for the gospel to go forward in an effective way? Friends, oftentimes, we're bringing impediments to people. Politics, stylistic preferences, music preferences, COVID policies, non-essentials that we make essential and they create obstacles for people engaging in the gospel. So what are those obstacles for you? If you have gospel conversations as you interact with people, if it is the person work of Jesus Christ, that's the obstacle. That's, that's, not an, that, that, that's an okay offense. You need to let that person wrestle with that. But if it's other sort of cultural, political, preferential things, let's clear, clear that out. Those are non-essentials. Keep the main thing the main thing. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That is, the decision at the Jerusalem council, Paul continues to take that letter, that decision, and he delivers it wherever he goes to the Gentiles that he's ministering to. And notice what happens. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the fruit of the Jerusalem council. This is of God's guidance amongst that body of Christians in Jerusalem, their wise decision-making delivered to the Gentiles strengthens them, encourages them, and in fact, numbers are added unto them. The fruit of God's wisdom and his goodness, his guidance, churches are strengthened and people are added to the faith. We see the fruit of God's guidance of his people. Churches strengthened, Christians added unto the faith. God's guidance here in ministry decisions. Secondly, we transition in verses 6 through 10, God's guidance in geographic decisions. God's guidance in geographic decisions. We see this in verses 6 through 10. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach 
the gospel to them. Here in verses 6 through 10, we see God strategically and carefully guiding his people westward. They can't go south. They can't go north. They're going westward. Why westward? Because it is the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that these Christians will be God's witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, what was the known ends of the earth? Westward, westward towards Rome. So we see God pushing the movement of the gospel westward. That's where this is. They can't go north. They can't go south. They keep going westward into Macedonia, ultimately at the end of the the book of Acts in Rome, which was the, the end of the known world at that time. Now, as you scan through these, these verses here, verses 6 through 10, I mean, your head's probably spinning. There's lots of stops and goes. There are ancient places and obscure names that are largely lost on us. And so what I'd like to do is I'm going to step aside here and just Phil's going to project a, a map here. Um, I think this will be helpful to you. And incidentally, as you read your Bible... There's a reason why on the cover of most Bibles, the back cover, there's maps in there. They're tremendously helpful to us. And if you have an ESV study Bible, those maps are actually embedded all along the way. And so if you would like an ESV study Bible, please come talk to me or talk to Dylan. We would love to help you. It's a phenomenal tool in understanding, studying the Bible. And so I'm just going to step aside here, and we're going to take a look at this map. It's a little bit difficult to see here, but the the red line is basically Paul's journey here. He was in Jerusalem with the Jerusalem Council. He travels up with Silas and some others. We saw this last week to Antioch to deliver the good news. And here he and Barnabas uh, separate. Barnabas takes John Mark. They go to Cyprus. And Paul takes Silas, and he says, let's backtrack where we just were, encourage the brothers and sisters there. So he just goes where he ended his first missionary journey, and he backtracks, okay? Lystra and Derby. That was his last stop on the first missionary journey, and this is where he was stoned, and that's where they go, and that's where they meet Timothy. Timothy then joins the team, and they continue onward through these regions of Phrygia and Galatia. Notice they bend north here through Phrygia, And here is where we see some pretty clear guidance. They try to go south, right? But the Holy Spirit says no. We don't know exactly what that looks like. They couldn't go south into Asia. They try to bend north into Bithynia. This is modern-day Turkey, and right here is Istanbul, right on Europe to the west, Asia. So Istanbul, where we have a partner, is this gateway city that literally is in between two continents, So they try to go north to Bithynia, they can't. The only way they can go is westward. The Holy Spirit is pushing them westward, westward, ultimately this way, into Macedonia. They hear this, Paul has this vision of the the man of Macedonia who says, come over here and help us. So he's given direction, can't go south, can't go north. Well, then finally he gets direction in the affirmative. God sends him a vision and says, a man from Macedonia, please come and help us. And that's just not like 
a neighbor's help of holding a ladder for, for another neighbor. No, the, the word there is salvation help, to come to the spiritual aid of another. And so the help that this man in Macedonia, is, that he's requesting, is spiritual help, salvation help. Come and help us spiritually. And the way that Paul and his team are going to do that is by sharing the gospel, speaking the gospel to these friends. So we see this man of Macedonia requesting help from Paul and his team. So here's a summary of the way that we see God guiding Paul and his ministry team. God led them through a combination of factors over a period of time in the context of community. That's what we see here in these five short verses. Paul was led through a combination of factors over a period of time in the context of community. Now, let's parse that out a little bit. He led them through a combination of factors. So at times, God prohibited them. At other times, he permitted them. Other times, he prompted them. Sometimes he said no. Other times he said go. That's what you see here in verses 6 through 10. He led them through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, perhaps through a prophetic word. We know that Silas, his ministry partner, was a prophet. We see this in Acts chapter 15. He led them through a vision, the man of Macedonia. He likely led them through circumstances, be they physical, financial, timing, and so on. At other times, they simply made a rational decision, like in verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they just went on to Troas. So they made a decision just to continue traveling west towards Troas. All this to say, God guides his people in a plethora of ways, a combination of factors. And this makes sense. If God is the God of the universe, then it's under his prerogative, right? It's under his purview to lead people in a multitude of ways. And that's what we see him, him doing here. And the point of application for us is be opened. Be open to the plethora of ways that God may guide you. Don't put God in a box saying that it can only be this way that he leads me, guides me. He at times gives us the freedom to make a decision between two or more good options. Other times it's zeroed in and focused. There's only one way to go. All the while, we have to just trust him, lean into him. We see in Paul's life a receptivity to the guidance of God. Paul shows himself in tune with God's guiding. He doesn't kick against God's guidance. He doesn't grumble. He's open. He's receptive to the guidance of God. No doubt Paul made travel plans. We see that. At the end of chapter 15, let's go on and backtrack retrace our steps, but he held those plans loosely. He understood the words of Proverbs 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of man plans his ways, but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. So we should be good planners, but we should also hold those plans loosely, being willing to be steered in other directions. When you think about God's guidance in your life, how have you responded in times when God has said no, and how have you responded in times when God has said go? We see that both of those directives here in this passage. 
It can be painful to hear a no, can it? Discouraging, difficult. When all you want and all you think is, let's go this way. And God, for whatever reason and by a number of means, says no. Our self-reliance kicks in against God's restraint oftentimes. But we must rest in the reality that our understanding is limited. His is unlimited. Our minds are finite. His are infinite. So it is is a safe place for us to trust and rest in the wisdom of God. He knows what he's doing better than we do. Paul doesn't kick against the goads when he hears the word no. He submits. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, on the other hand, how do we respond when God says go? How do we respond when God says go? I have often responded to God's go with, I'm afraid. I'm worried. I don't know what's going to happen. That seems like a tall order. And we often get so focused on our own insufficiencies and inadequacies to fulfill the task or the calling before us that we lose sight of the fact that God always equips when he calls. He always equips. He provides us what we need to fulfill what he's calling us to do. Always calls and equips. Like Paul, we we submit to God's restraint and we walk boldly in faith when his directions are clear, when he says go. As I've thought about this this week, it reminds me of seven plus years ago preparing to plant this church. Friends, I tell you, it would have been helpful to have the man from Belmont show up in my dreams and say, hey, come over here and help us. I was living in Watertown, but he never came. That's okay. God used a plethora of ways to guide us here with many of you all to plant this church seven years ago. Well, what did he use? Well, in August of 2009, he provided us this great apartment, walking distance from here, just off of Cushing Square, pretty close to where Paul and Phil Brooks live. We started renting an apartment, My wife and I like to walk and run. We would go by the old Starbucks fishing square that's now been renovated to a new one, but we spent time in Belmont. We would interact with people. We built relationships with people, and suddenly God burdened our hearts for this place. He provided us an apartment and a context and relationships. He gave us a a position at a local church in Cambridge that had a history of planting churches. I had zero experience to church planting. But he put us in a context where church planting was just in the water. You couldn't help but drink it up. And suddenly we're thinking about, hey, what what would it look like for our family to be engaged in the mission of God in a different community? And so we started praying and looking around. Well, Belmont could use a solid church. He's guiding us. And then we started asking people questions for encouragement and affirmation. One of the key means of discernment is your community, godly counsel. Surround yourself with people who you trust. Not yes people, people who can shoot straight and tell you the truth. Do you, do you see us as a family, Laura and I, as, church, as a church planting family? I wanted to know. And several people, yes, we do. Go. We'll pray for you. So God used counsel, community, to encourage us. God guided us to start this work here in Belmont through a plethora of circumstances and people, a combination of factors. 
Notice also, God led Paul and company over a period of time. Their journey was a journey. It didn't happen overnight. What we read here in 10, five short verses actually happens over a period of months. It seems sort of fast forwarded, but the the reality is it happened over time. It wasn't overnight. Friends, God leads people over time. We often want the decisions immediately. Oftentimes, God brings them over time. Now, there are times when he does certainly have us turn on a dime and it's a quick decision, but more often than not, it's it's the slow cooker, not the microwave decision. It's the slow cooker. It takes time, time where he reveals his plan for us, and it's in the slow cooker that your faith grows because it's hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient. Additionally, God led Paul and company in the context of community. He guided them as a team through their interactions with one another. They they clearly did the journey together. Notice this curious plural pronoun here. We concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to Macedonia. It's out of nowhere. It's the first one we see in the book of Acts. Luke, the writer of this book, is journeying with Paul and Silas and Timothy. Somehow, someway, he joins up with them here at this juncture. And he says, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to Macedonia. So they went. They were making decisions in the counsel of others. Paul wasn't just unilaterally making decisions by himself. They do this together. That's the healthy place to make good, godly decisions in the company of others. So I ask you, as you think about your life, as you make big decisions, career, locational decisions, relational decisions, ministry decisions, do you do them unilaterally? Just you, or if you're married, just you and your spouse. Can I encourage you to involve the body of Christ, involve others? That's how we discern in the most helpful and fruitful way. What would it look like to invite a trusted friend or a mentor to have a conversation, to share with them where you're at? Invite them and their input, though it may be yes or no, just invite their input. It is healthy for us. We are wired to do life together. And our goal is to invite people into community that we may lean into one another and look unto Christ following Christ together, helping each other make good, godly decisions, whatever they may be. Lean into your community. And if you're new to this community, that's the invitation that I want to hold out to you. We are stationed here in Belmont to be a blessing to you, to invite you in, to encourage you, and to help you look onto Christ. We will lock arms and do this together. We want to have you a part of this work. I know some of us in this room are in the midst of making a difficult decision. Next Sunday, March 27th, is our commissioning service for the, Bel- the, the Bedford Church plant. So we've prayed for Scott and Kate Cope. They are leading a church plant in Bedford, just north of west of us. Many of you have joined in that work in preparation, have gone to core group gatherings, have gone on prayer walks. And I know it's a big decision that's weighing on many of us in this room I just want to encourage you from this passage, God is faithful and good and wise to lead you. Trust in him. Hold your plans loosely. Trust in his folding plan. 
Walk by faith. He's faithful to guide you through his word, through his spirit, through community, through circumstances. Be open to how he's leading you. So God leads his people through a combination of factors over a period of time in the context of community. We see Acts 16, verses 1 through 10, God's guidance in ministry decisions, God's guidance in geographical decisions, all with this central theme. He displays his wisdom and his goodness through his guidance of his people. God displays his wisdom and his goodness through his guidance of his people. Now, as we close, a key question here, how do you actually know that God is good? How do you know that God is on your side? How do you know that God is for you and has your best interests in mind? That's a question that I always ask when I think about what's in my life or which direction to head. Can I actually trust God? How do you know that God is for you? Friends, we must look to God's guidance at the cross for he's answered these questions resolutely there. We can rest in the wisdom and the goodness of God in guiding us, his people, in every circumstance. We can trust that God is for us. Why? Because God guided his son to the cross for us. Hear the words of Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament, speaking of the work of Jesus the Messiah. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. We've probably, you're familiar with that passage. Jesus was led across like a lamb to the slaughter. Well, who led him? His great father led him to the cross. And because the heavenly father led God the son to the cross for us to die in our place for our sins, we can trust God in every other decision that is before us, no matter the uncertainty. If God has answered, I love you and I'm for you, biggest decision in our biggest need, we can trust him in every other need in life. Because he led his very own son, his beloved son, to the cross, as a lamb is led to the slaughter, we can trust him in every other direction, every other need. No matter how murky and dark it may seem, he is good and he's proven himself faithful. He's proven himself trustworthy. Lean into him. Walk with him. This is our greatest need. This is the greatest direction that a human being needs. Trusting in God's provision for our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. And so maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I want to invite you to turn to Jesus Christ Look unto him. He is faithful forever. He came and lived perfectly. He died historically on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose again on the third day. Anybody who trusts in him is forgiven of their sins, and they enter a new journey that leads to life and hope eternal. Would you trust in Christ? And if you are a Christian, be encouraged. God has guided you in your biggest need, He's directed you. He will be there for you, and we will guide you in every other lesser decision that we make in this life. He's trustworthy forever. May we look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your guidance, through your word, for an opportunity to just open it up, 
to receive truth and conviction and encouragement and counsel from it. Father, many of us in this room are in the midst of decision-making ourselves. I pray that you would help us as a body trust in you together, that we would invite others in to pray for us, to give us input and counsel and encouragement, to challenge us at times when we need to be challenged. We thank you that you're forever faithful, that we need not worry about you being for us because you've answered that forever at the cross. Thank you for sending your son in our place for our sin and for his resurrection that gives us hope and eternal life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.